Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Peter Morgan. While Peter is a private investor today, he's far better known for his career at Perpetual and 452 Capital. Peter joined Perpetual when it was a $70 million minnow, managing a handful of Perpetual Trusts. When he left around 10 years later, the company had grown into a $12 billion giant of the Australian funds management industry. He then founded his own firm, 452 Capital, and repeated his success. In this episode, we hear how an incorrect cancer diagnosis caused him to leave the industry and change his lifestyle and attitudes. He tells us how he manages assets differently now as a private investor, and we get some of his views on markets and stocks today. We also hear why his dog Blaze is the best investment he's ever made. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of this wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Peter, good to be chatting with you. Welcome to the show. Yeah. I uh, I don't actually get the opportunity to hear your thoughts as much as I'd like to these days. I think the last interview I could find with yourself that was conducted locally uh, was with the Future Generation podcast, which I think I think it was 2019. So I'm pretty excited to hear some of your current thoughts on the market and also to hear about your fascinating kind of backstory and some of your experiences, which I'm sure some of our audience will be familiar with and some won't. But let's start there, actually, with that kind of background. I'm not sure if many people would know that you were one of the early key staff members at Perpetual. Was it, it was early 90s that you started there, wasn't it? Yeah, I started in, um, in not, late 1990. Um, prior to that, um, I'd become a tw- uh, qualified chartered accountant, um, did four years of that, and then basically just to try and get into New York, I took a job as an internal auditor at BT Australia, which was the high-flying and, and very good and excellent place um, uh, in terms of financial markets back in the the mid eighties, and that introduced me to, you know, young young kids being directed by guys like Chris Corrick and Rob Ferg- Rob Fergus and Julian Broadbent, and I was only the internal auditor, but I got to go around and uh, see all these um, guys and girls, you know, doing well and taking on the big old, uh, you know, life offices like AMP and the and the incumbent banks, and basically I just wanted to try and find the next BT. Um, I broke into stock breaking in June '87, and then, uh, as you alluded to, went up to Perpetual uh, in 1990. So, when you started there, could you give us an idea of what Perpetual was like at the time in terms of size, 
And I mean, everybody knows Perpetual now as being this, you know, behemoth of the industry, but I think it was pretty different back then, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was very different, mate. And it was, um, you've got to remember that 80, September 87 happened um, and, you know, markets had financial, you know, the, the share market had collapsed here in Australia. And, you know, all the entrepreneurs like Alan Bond and Christopher Scase that were, you know, high flying and Robert Holmes of Court and the like were, you know, on their knees. And then in the early 1990s, um, you know, uh, Treasurer Keating said that, you know, Australia had to have the recession we had to have. And interest rates were 13%. It's, you know, it's not long after touching 13%, they were close to 20%. And, you know, Anton, who was at Anton Tagliaferro, who was at Perpetual uh, at the time, uh, asked me to come up there. Uh, another guy who you might know called John Murray was was also there. And I went and started uh, at Perpetual. Uh, with those two and a few others, um, you know, I can just distinctly remember that, you know, for a long, long time, it felt like a long time, you know, we didn't know whether we had a job tomorrow, let alone next next week or next year, uh, you know, things were that bad. But, you know, working with Anton, working with John and, you know, other guys that came along like uh, John Sevier and, and Matt Williams and uh, Amy Sames and, you know, all all those uh, guys and girls, um, you know, we only had really one intention, that was not only to survive, but, you know, we were really enjoying what we were doing and it soon became evident that, you know, investing was more like a sport uh, back then and, and still is today than, than a job and, you know, we loved it. And um, when I went to Perpetual, um, you know, with Anton and John, the industrial share fund was still a, a closed uh, closed fund. It was only available to the perpetual in, in, internal clients such as charities and inheritances and, and uh, wealthy people at the time and the industrial share fund was worth $50 million. I think the Australian share fund, which included mining stocks, was worth $20 million. So in total, it was $70 million. But those two funds had survived 87 and within those funds was some with some larger stocks like Brambles and uh, National Bank and BHP, but there was also, you know, 70 to 80% of the portfolios were made up of, um, you know, good quality, smaller, mid-sized uh, companies like um, you know, Australian Chemical Holdings, Gibson Chemicals, Bundaberg Sugar, um, you know, Waddle Paints, Reese was there, Salt Patterson's was there, Bricksworks were there. But the important thing was that, None of those stocks were covered by the broader market or the broking community because they were small they were small and they were illiquid. So what that basically meant is that, you know, we had to go and work out, you know, not only what these companies did, but also why they survived. And that provided the framework for perpetual going to eventually going to the market with a prospectus based around simplistically, you know, what had made those companies survive. It was basically no good quality balance sheets, not a lot of debt, good management, um, a sound business that had a recurring recurring earnings stream, um, and that just that just formed the basis for for how we you know how we were going to invest basically for the rest of you know our lifetimes. And I know Anton hasn't changed much, and I know John hasn't changed much, and I haven't changed much in terms of. Um, you know, but investing based upon that style that we you know basically learnt from the ground up at Perpetual. 
It's funny, actually, that you mentioned, Anton, some of those stocks that you that you just referred to then, Brambles was one that stu- stood out to me. It's a stock that, as far as I know, last I don't want to speak for Investors Mutual here, but as last time that they published anything about it, at least, it was a stock that he's still interested in. And it's, in, it's interesting to see, you know, like, what, 30 years has passed since then. And, and, and it's the same companies a lot of the time. It, it is. And I mean, I mean, you've only got to look at something like Brickworks that, you know, now the market is found, but, but back then no one really knew anything much about it and it was it didn't want to tell the market much about it. There was a, dis- there was a different style back then, Patrick, which I think a lot of people forget, is that, you know, companies didn't want to talk to the market. Uh, you know, even, even your example like uh, Brambles, you know, Gary Pemberton, who you might remember, they, they prided themselves on putting, you know, one one slide up on a presentation if they ever did a presentation, and, that, and that, that's what that's what you got. So, and and sadly, you know, and again, I suppose I should also say that you know back you know back in the early nineties, everyone wanted to be a stockbroker. No one wanted to be a fund manager. You know, there was you know, it's lucky if there was fifteen fund managers out there at the time. You know, five of those were going broke because they had investments in, you know, Bond Corp or Adelaide Steamship. And that, that gave actually us and Perpetual the opportunity, particularly with superannuation being introduced, to, to, you know, to grow and enter an industry that was, you know, just about to take off and, and it did take off. But, you know, today if you reverse that, you know, I don't know how many stockbrokers there are out there. That, you know, let's say there's 20, but there's probably a 1,000 fund managers and it's, it's all flipped around, you know, it's completely flipped around and, um, and you know, it's it's matured into an industry within itself. It's pretty easy these days to research a small, medium company, even if it's relatively unknown. I mean, it's if, if you can read a, a financial report, you can jump on the ASX website, download the latest and, and you're away. I can't imagine it was quite so easy in those days. How did you, I mean, how did you actually start the process with some of these companies back then? Well, we basically, basically for the ones that weren't researched, we just had to go out and see them. And and you say it's easy today, but, um, but, but going out and seeing management, you met with them, you grew with them. Like we didn't, we didn't sell a lot of these stocks because they were so good and, you know, um, and we developed a relationship with management which was important and I think that, and I still think that's important. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like going to AGMs because you can actually see how people perform, you know, within a, within a, with a very, very public environment and, you know, you know, we'd go out to, you know, George Western Foods or you'd go out and see the factories and, um, you know, it was, it was it's like the old saying, you're touching it and feeling it and, um, you know how, for, for one of us, a bad word, like national can industries, you know, the first thing I learned was there's two types of cans. There's a two-piece can and a three-piece can. And, you know, one goes into beer cans and the other one goes into, you know, paint cans. And, you know, you're, and you'd see the production line, you know, it was all that sort of stuff. And it was it was quite exciting. Like it was learning that, you know, there was another company there called, which is still around today, called Gowings, and it was right next to... Um, you know, Australian Amalgamated Holdings, which was owned by the, the Ridge family, but the play on both of them was to, to amalgamate a site in uh, near the State Theatre there in, uh, in Pitt, uh, Pitt Street, I think it's, um, and it was an asset play. So it was, it was, it was, it was like as Peter Lynch says, it's like you know, you're going out onto the beach and turning over stones and finding, finding what's there and, and taking it from there. And um, you know, it was. It was not only, and I think it's also important to be an accountant as well and understand accounts because I don't think a lot of people 
do do that today and look at annual reports. But you know, we, you know, John John Murray was a chartered account. Anton was a chartered account. There's a few others there at Perpetual with chartered accounts as well. We could read balance sheets, and we we knew the assets were sound. It was more what the and then and back in those days, it was a constant thing, and even the banks were doing it, was to understate assets. Um, whereas today, it's all flipped around. Where you know, you could argue that you know a lot of a lot of the intangible stuff going on that you know. Companies are now overstating their asset backing um, on that intangible line, but it was, you know, it was all that coming together. But, but it was also, as I said, it was also an environment where we we're trying to survive. We'd found something that we loved. So let's fast forward a bit. You started at Perpetual, seventy million dollars funds under management. Um, I think it was what about ten or eleven years later that you'd left. Is that right? Yeah, it was early. Uh, it was twelve years. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I can remember getting my long service leave, and uh, um, so John, you know, Anton had left. John had left pretty quickly after I joined in terms of that twelve years. But um, you know, John Seville then came along, and Matt Williams was there, and uh, you know, as I said, Amy Soames was there, and um, you know, and, and Paul Scanguris Slater came along, and all that sort of thing came along. And but I'd been there for twelve years, and as I said, we'd gone from 70, 70 million to. I think when I left, we were up to twelve billion, and uh, you know, John was married, uh, managing a reasonable part of that. I was managing a reasonable part of that, and we'd sort of reached a little bit of, you know, obviously reached maturity. And I'd been there for twelve years, and um, and you know, the idea of a boutique or the opportunity to become a boutique fund manager was just starting to happen. I think you know, guys like David Paradise and Peter Cooper. And, and even Anton, who had left, were sort of fiddling around at that end of the market, and and you know that started to interest me. Um, and then I went out, and you know, with a guy called Warwick Negus, and did you know did four five two capital. You know, I suppose well, to answer your question, I I was still young enough to back myself again, um, and given that you know uh, automation had come, technology had come, it allowed the development of the BT. So, so that, that was the reason that you decided to leave. Oh, it? it was. It was always in the back. Of, it was. It was starting to get in the back of my mind. I think the other thing that tipped me over the line, of, and it wasn't the the only reason, but it did tip me over the line. If you remember back in two thousand and one, you had the dot com boom, and for I don't know four years, five years, a perpetual. Um, for all the right reasons, uh, we hadn't owned any news corporation. And as the dot-com boom kept kept booming and technology became a theme rather than a fundamental, fundamental reason to invest in a lot of stocks, news corporation, because it was so big here in Australia, became um, 18 20% of the index um, and we didn't own a share. And, but... Underneath that, we had you know a lot of good companies, and we were actually going with the index, or just a touch behind it, um, up until um, the time when AOL and Time Warner merged. And on that particular day, I can still remember um, um, News Corp was nineteen percent of the index, and AOL decided to merge with Time Warner, um, which meant you know the the global market started to have an interest in media stocks and News Corp being the largest stock here in Australia and 18% of the index went up 20% in one day and we fall behind roughly 3.5% in one day and, you know, I can remember saying to John, you know, maybe we should jump out this window, you know. Um, you know, we were going that bad. It felt bad, but it only felt bad for about 12, you know, 
you know, 12 hours at the most. And we we both said, and as the others said, you know, we can fight and get this back. We weren't that, we were, you know, we dropped, we should drop a lot in one day. We thought we could get it back. But I know this is sounding like a long story, but the, the other problem is you have with publicly owned um, investment houses that have also got to please shareholders. Um, the board and the CEO in particular started to get worried, started to worry that we didn't own their news corp and it was now 22% of the index. And lo and behold, they started putting pressure on us or started to indirectly put pressure on us to buy a news corp. And for every, anyone that's been, you know, an investor, it's it's the worst thing that can happen. You're told to do something when you know, you know in your heart there's a 90% chance it's the wrong thing to do. And as sure as night follows day, as soon as we started to, by some News Corp having been told to do it, News Corp fell out of bed and it was back to almost where it started at hand. And, and, and that's not being overly critical. It was just I still think it was one of the things that tipped me over the line to back myself and go out and do what I did, even though I wanted to do it and I was young enough to do it. But, you know, it, it, all, it, it played probably the, the thing that just tipped me over the edge the most. Could you tell us about the circumstances in which you departed from four five two capital? I understand it was um it was a, a pretty uh, unusual situation. Oh look, you know, look, it's a long it's as I say, it's a long story, but it was a culmination of things. Patrick, I'd got um, looking back on it, I was probably quite depressed and, and mentally ill, and that's what I've been told since and um, and I was probably burnt out, and I wasn't right in, I think it was February 2009. It was, you know, things were not so much going off the rails, but I just wasn't mentally right. I was burnt out. I was, I think, you know, as I said, things were sort of going a little bit haywire. And as part of the process of going through the medical side, um, one of the doctors that I was seeing, that is one, of, you know, was one of Australia's best. Said, "Well, um, how about we do an MRI scan and see what's happening in your brain and that sort of thing?" Which sounds, you know, sounds sounds heavy, and it was. And so I went and had uh, an MRI scan, and that came back with some shading on the brain that you know could be in everyone, or shading on the brain can be in everyone, but well, not in everyone, but in some. And as part of that process, I had a I biopsy done on my brain, which basically meant that um, my brain was operated on, the, the sample was taken. And, again, to cut a long story short, um, that biopsy was taken away and cut and, and I was diagnosed as having a rare form of brain cancer and that led through to a process where I was given six months to live um, and I went on to chemo um, and basically had a, um, you know, a grandstand view of what happens in the whole cancer process. And and as I've said to a lot of people, you know, I would have paid them a million dollars to be wrong and they were wrong. Um, it was a painful process to go through. Um, but, you know, it, it, it knocked, you know, it knocked, a, you know, it knocked me around and, and basically, um, you know, you know, four, five, two, four apart after that. Um, but it was, um, you know, it was something something to learn from and something that sort of changes your opinion on, you know, a lot of things, you know, after it's passed, passes the system. 
Yeah, well, that was actually what I wanted to ask you. Is I mean, it's it's such an an unusual and extreme situation to be you know incorrectly diagnosed with with such a severe illness. Um, do you think? Uh, well, having said that, I have had people say to me that you'd be surprised how how often it happens, and um, you know, I think the other thing I noted from the whole process is that there's some wonderful people in the system. You know, medicine is something that should be admired, but not because of the misdiagnosis, but it is quite a um, still somewhat a primitive process, if that's still the right word, and there's still areas where it's reliant on um, a lot of circumstantial evidence. And, uh, and as they say, you know, um, it's always important to get a second and maybe a third opinion. You mentioned that it had had a pretty major impact on, you know, how you think about things. Can you give us any examples of that? Like, um, you know, like uh, uh, is there anything specific that you can identify about how it's changed your perspective? Very simplistically, I was probably like a lot of people, that they still are, they they view money as a measure of um, a, a ladder. The more money you've got, the better you you are, um, and I know that's a crude and probably a hard, hard thing to say. Um, and I'm, you know, I've done, done done very well financially, but you know, you suddenly realise you can't, you know, you can't take all this money with you. Um, and and I actually went through the process where I was told when they said I was going to die to get my affairs in order and to um, you know to rearrange everything for death as bad as that is to say, and I went through all that whole process. And, you know, and when that was happening, I was thinking, you know, you've, you know, what are you going to leave the kids to remember you by and all that sort of thing. And and as time progresses, you think none of that really matters. It doesn't, it, it, you can only leave them, you can only leave an experience for want of a better word, but you might as well enjoy it. And, you know, like, you know, I've lost count of the number of times I've been asked to go back with others or go back into the marketplace. I honestly don't want to do it. I'm just, I'm just very happy. You know, um, little things like buying a dog and having a dog with you for ten years. You know, and getting the enjoyment. And I honestly think a dog's been the best, best thing in terms of an asset I bought in terms of value for money. You know, for three hundred bucks or something and for the pleasure it's given you. And the same with the paddleboard. You know, I mean, I, and and just to travel and have the ability to do that. Now I'm lucky uh, in the sense that. Not only as you know, did I did I do well out of the market, but also the fact that I can still keep an interest in what I did through investing today. Whereas a you know a banker or a um, you know someone that retires cannot take that with them and stay you know, stay interested, and thereby they may get bored or be pushed into doing things that they you know maybe don't want to do or shouldn't be doing. Well, I wouldn't talk about how you're managing your money today. You know, I've I've heard so many people talk about how different it is, you know, when you make that transition from, you know, running your own money to managing other people's money. I'd be curious to hear how it's been for you making the opposite transition and going from running from investing other people's money to, to investing your own. How has your approach to investing changed as a result of that? Well, very simplistically, the first point of call is not to lose the money. <laughs> As stupid as that sounds. And, um, <laughs> Rule one. <laughs> and, 
Well, but, but it is, and it's an important thing for people to realise when they're giving money to a fund manager. You know, all fund managers around the world, for for rightly or wrongly, are measured against a benchmark. So, you know, um, if a benchmark's down 20% and you're only down 10%, the market and investors over time will say that's a good performance, whereas, you know, if I've lost 10% or 20% of my own money, you know, that's going to hurt for a while for, you know, for different reasons. And, you know, um, and I'm not quite sure how old you are, but I've gone through, let's say you're 40 or something, since I started in finance, I've gone through probably four critical or five critical periods in the marketplace. And the most recent of those was in March 2020, where I'm out here on my own with my own money in the marketplace. And in March 2020, the market's going down 12% one night, up 6% one night. And for a period there, it was down about 25%. Now, that was hitting home pretty hard, even though I was comfortable where I was positioned. But, you know, it's it's completely different to be to be in that situation than running $12 billion for, you know, for a group of other people when it's not hit, you know, not hitting your back pocket because you're still getting the 1% or the half percent management fee, even though from a lower base. So, you know, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the, the basic thing is that your first point of call is not to lose the money. As, as Warren Buffett said, you know, rule number one, investing, don't lose the money. Rule number two is don't forget, you know, rule number one, so... What about asset allocation? Do you still primarily invest in equities or have you kind of expanded your portfolio as a private investor and taken on other um, other asset classes too? It's mainly it's, – it's been mainly a skew to Australian equities. And the only, one of the re- main reasons for that is I understand the Australian market. You know, um, invest in what you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's important. I mean, I can't, again – Investing's not easy, but it's it's you don't have to complicate it either. And I know the Australian marketplace. I know Australian companies. I've tr- I'm trying, and I've been trying for four or five years to get close to overseas markets, and that's partly one of the reasons I do what I do. On you know, looking at Twitter and that sort of thing, and, um, it is to you know try and work out you know what you know what's driving overseas markets and what companies overseas are good and. And, and and that leads to that. But to answer your question, it's mainly in Australian equities, and you know it, it might diversify into national equities. But uh, I'm not sure. But having said that, as well, um, being out of the market, and I alluded to this before, have been I have been able to travel quite a bit, and that's taken me to areas like um, you know the startup uh, showcases and that sort of thing that are put on in Texas and New York and that sort of thing. And there's a few here, and um, but we're in a you know we're in a market today where liquidity is there's more buyers than sellers. So, uh, but I'm I'm also interested in, you know on a longer term basis in the startup space, basically because I'd love to see you know more Australian startups out there doing well. Yeah. You mentioned it, uh, Twitter there before, which is actually how I how I discovered you. Um, and I've noticed when you're on there, you do uh, you do talk a lot about geopolitics. Now, a lot of I think a lot of professional fund managers think about geopolitics a lot, and but they often will tell you, you know, politics and macro it doesn't form part of our strategy. When you're looking at what's going on in China, the US, etc., is that part of your investment strategy, or does that Come more from just a, a personal curiosity. It's well going back a step. Australia is still an island, twenty five million people on it, and the Australian share market is still 
quite um, old is not the right word, but it's 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 not as mature as other markets in terms of business base. Uh, you know, the technology base is you know it's quite small here in Australia. It's the Australian the Australian share market is still heavily skewed towards um, you know mining and banking, um, but places like China have become you know, critically, you know, critically important not only to mining stocks but also as an expansion base for some Australian companies. But, you know, the whole reason I, you know, took an interest in Twitter, and I can't believe I'm having this conversation again about Twitter, but was to, was to try and learn something about social media. And to be honest with you, it was the only one I could really understand. I mucked around on Snapchat. I mucked around on, uh, you know, LinkedIn and that sort of thing. And it was the only one I sort of grew attached to. And, I, and, I was, and I've got more time now to sort of – and it's, it's, it's quite a good research base. It, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, I said this to someone the other day, it's like, you know, having a lot of road rage going along around you when you're driving, driving along a freeway the way, you know, it's quite, you know, it's quite, you know, the commentaries at times from, you know, some clowns that you can't even identify is quite hard and quite vicious. But, um, but underneath that, there are a lot of good people on there that, you know, provide information. It's the same as... Um, it's, it's the same as picking up international newspapers and tech journals from all around the world. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose what I'm trying to say to you, Patrick, is, um, you know, Australia is a, a small fish in a very big pond, but underneath that as well, as well, we've got so much money going to superannuation, the money has to get overseas. And I think, you know, everyone's got money in superannuation. You know, if you're going to have money with a superannuation fund that's, probably going to end up investing half of it overseas. You want to know what companies you're in. So there's a bit of that in it as well. How have you found the learning curve getting to understand the, you know, like the, the it's so different, the reporting regimes and the, um, you know, and the accounting rules, say, take America, for example, compared to what we have here. Was that, I mean, I guess you come from a, a chartered accountant's background, so it's probably easier for you. But um, did you find there was a big learning curve there? in getting your head around the different processes for, that you sometimes have to use for overseas companies? Um, the accounting is probably better, um, although we've got into this situation now where accounting has become neglected by the marketplace. And what I mean by that, you know, when we started at, um, at Perpetual, you know, it's obviously a PE ratio, and a you know a net tangible asset backing, and you could translate that. They'll take that you know from the accounts and you know forecast it out. You know, we're now in a place in the world today where price to sales and things like that, or expectations, are becoming um, the drivers for stock price. Part of the drivers for stock prices and valuation. The only trouble with that is a lot of a lot of the. Um, the stuff that's being thrown is in as a reason to buy a company is not being audited. If I can use that example, um, you know whether it's ARPU or same store or growth in a particular thing, it's it's all reliant on what the company is telling the marketplace. And you know it's only a small example why, as to why I think you know accounting shouldn't be forgotten about and, and is important to know. Um, but and again, again, the other thing is that the Australian business base is nothing like the US business base or the, the Chinese business base, which is so much diverse. Like there's no Amazons in Australia. There's no there's no Microsofts. There's no um, there's no Facebook. I mean there's no there's no Alibaba. There's no uh, um, you know there's no Tencent. There's no there's none of that. And 
it's a matter of knowing that. And it's, it's also, as I said at the start, it's also important to know the people that are, that are driving these companies. And the other, the other thing, the other, the other small thing that you note is that whereas here in Australia where the financial press will have a heavy skew towards directors, um, you hardly see that overseas. It's more the founders and the CEOs that are the, the people driving the companies or, you know, seem to be driving the companies as they should be. And that's, again, different to what's happening here in Australia. You have uh, said in the past that you were concerned about removal of stimulus from economies as, as they begin to open up post-COVID, which has obviously been a concern for a lot of investors this year. Sitting here in July, we find ourselves in a situation that I'm sure some people may have expected, but none of us hoped for, where you've got Sydney and Melbourne both in lockdown. We've got case numbers rising sharply in the UK and the USA, although I would put a asterisk on that, that we're not seeing huge, you know, a, a commensurate rise in hospitalizations and deaths, but there's no doubt there's been a, a significant increase again. I guess I'd like to know how your views on this issue have evolved, given that it seems like maybe that stimulus might be around a little bit longer than than we uh, originally expected. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a few things that I've got, you know, worries over. I mean, the first is obviously what the central banks have done over the last over the last decade. You know, we're now in a situation where, with quantitative easing, we've, you know, we're up to almost 15 trillion US dollars in central banks holding bonds, effectively on on balance sheets. We've got negative interest rates in Europe. We've got next next to zero interest rates in Australia, and the result of that is not only that asset prices have gone through the reef, but we've got you know a world that's carrying about a hundred trillion US dollars in debt, which is nothing like it's been in the past. And the first thing that worries me is that I just can't see how the ECB and Japan and to a lesser extent the US and Australia can taper um, their position without you know, having an impact on the marketplace. And I don't actually don't think the ECB can taper. I just I just can't see how they can. Um, and that's before you even get to thinking about interest rates. And it's also bef- the other, you know, thing that you've alluded to there is that, th- you know, two, three years ago we didn't have the amount of fiscal stimulus that's going into the marketplace by the US, by Australia and by the rest of the world and the UK as we do today. And... There's no, there's no coincidence that we've got so much liquidity in the marketplace that banks are having trouble lending the money, not because interest rates are low, just because everyone's flush with cash. And you know, the flip side of that is you know, consumer spending has to go up and debt has to go up and asset prices have gone up. Now, simplistically, that means everyone, and I know they are. You saw it last week. I don't mean to be – I like Australian super. I, I like – you know, I used to manage money for them. I had some of the smartest directors I've ever seen. But for someone like Australian Super to say, and hopefully they were misquoted, that capital preservation, it's not the right term to be focusing on capital preservation. Well, I just thought it was madness. I just, it was just another, another anecdotal evidence that everyone is on the same side of the boat and every rich person is on the other side, the same side of the boat. And that means, you know, markets can you know, leverage to the downside just as much as they can to the upside when everyone's buying the market. And that's the thing that concerns me. I mean, it does concern me. You know, Patrick, I was there in 87 and the market for five hours on that Tuesday morning was seller no buyer. There was no price for 
big stocks. Um, um, it just wasn't there. And that could happen again. It might not happen again, but it could happen again. So let's stick with that, with what you were saying there, that, you know, you think that the ECB at least, certainly uh, I don't think anybody would argue with you on the BOJ, and potentially maybe the the Fed and and the RBA are going to have problems tapering. What do you think is going to be the effect if they abandon that? Let's say, you know, hypothetically, although it might not end up being hypothetical in the end, you know, the, the ECB and then and then the Fed and the RBA say, all right, we accept we can't taper. It's it's going to ruin everything. So we're just going to stick with zero rates forever. We're going to keep doing our QE. We're going to keep, you know, keep, keep just keep on keeping on um, without any tapering. Where do we end up there? Well, I just can't see how we don't get inflation to to a large to a larger degree, and I just can't see how we don't get the situation. We we may well be at it now, where as I said, everyone's on the same boat that. It may well be that markets have priced in what you've just said, and there's only one thing that they can do, and that's tip over. And it, it um, to this day, although you know some argue it was program trading, no one sort of explained what happened in '87 in terms of why one night it just you know just blew up overhand. And, and then that can happen. I mean, that can happen. And but I, honestly, I said it, and I think you know with any investment, you've. You're not going to be right all the time, but you've also got to weigh weigh up the the chances of risk. And all I'm saying is that if you've got money, as everyone has in superannuation, I would not have 100%. I've got 50% of superannuation in the market at the moment. I would not have 100% in the markets, financial markets at the moment. That's more, I'm a pessimist, but I think you're mad if you've got 100%. I don't think there's anything wrong with having 50% and maybe missing out. You know, I hope, you know, some of the games that may happen, but they may not happen. I just think it's, you know, a risky strategy. You know, it's, again, it's, I, find, I find it amazing that, you know, the markets in March 2020 were, were on their knees and out. And no one was saying, put all your money in the market then, but now we're 30 40% higher, some places 50%. I don't know, everyone's saying, you know, don't worry about capital preservation. This will go on for a while. Put all your money in there. I think it's just stupid. And, as I said, I don't want to say you have to be out of the market totally. I don't, I'm not saying you have to buy put options on the market. I don't even think you have to make that call. But I would not be having 100% of my super in the share market. I just think it's dumb. So what are you doing with the other 50? Well, I don't expect you to give me details, but just broadly speaking, oh, yeah. are you leaving the uh, the rest in cash or are you, uh, are you looking for other ways to put it to work? I don't. Even if interest rates went to 2%, right, and they went up to 2%, is it? No much of a difference against zero now. I don't think it is. And I'm I'm happy just sitting here and seeing what unfolds over the last over the next two or three years. You know where I am, unless something changes to make me dynamically different. As I said, you, I've seen I've seen eighty seven, I've seen two thousand, I've seen two thousand and eight, and two thousand and twenty in the last thirty five years of my life, uh, where markets have been given fantastic opportunities, and I think that can happen again, but. And all I'm trying to say in saying that is you don't have to you don't have to swing the bat or you don't have to bet on every race or swing the bat at every, you know every day of the week. Uh, I think you will get chances, and you know if you're forty and you're going to live to eighty, I reckon you'll get ten five to ten really good chances to have a good good swing at the market when you go a hundred percent all in um, again. You know I've never been I've never gone into debt in my life to go into a market. And I wouldn't advise anyone to do that, but. There are times to have a really good swing, and that's you know it's not it's not now. Um, you know we're on you know um, 
I haven't been really doing a lot in the marketplace. Um, if you ask me what I look, you know, I, I think a company like, and I've said this before, a company like, you know, it hasn't done much uh, in the last, you know, couple of weeks or so, but a company like Reef Casino is still all right. But um, um, I'm sort of interested in companies like Illumina um, on a longer-term basis, uh, only because I, you know, I can remember Rio trying to buy it at $7 and now it's $1.50 with worries about climate change and you've still got Alcoa there, but, you know, it's a longer-term type of thing. Um, there's a little one there that I have been buying called, you know, Design. These are not, Rick, I, I just think it's, you know, I, I'm happy to, to be fiddling around doing what I'm doing. I'm not doing a lot at the moment in the context of, um, you know, you know, markets are pretty full. Yeah, and look, just for the benefit of our audience, I would just repeat that, that any stocks discussed are not recommendations. That's always true with all of my guests, but especially true today, but you should never take anything. The other thing, Patrick, is everyone should just remember that they're not going to get every call right, right? And if you're getting seven out of 10 right, you will make a lot of money. And I've heard Jeff Wilson say this, you know, they're getting five or six right out of 10. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to... Uh, and I hate doing it. It's really hard to make recommendations. I hate doing it. I'm happy to lose, but I've got no control over what, you know, I don't know the positions of everyone else and I don't, I don't really like doing it a lot. Um, but anyway. Well, uh, something I'm guessing you probably do like doing is researching bubbles, I'm guessing here, but uh, I, I get the impression that you might be a little bit of a bubble historian. Is that a, is that a, a fair assumption? Oh, more a market uh, historian. Um, you know, it's not, you know, the, the, the bubble the bubble story's got a context that you're only interested in watching markets for. I'm also very interested in buying markets at the bottom as well. Um, uh, yes, we've had bubbles in the past. Yes, I was there in the dot-com boom that blew up quickly. Yes, I was there in the financial crisis of 2008. Yes, I was there in 2020 when the pandemic hit. Yes, I was there in 87. But it's human nature to... As Buffett said, you know, it's 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 important to be greedy when everyone's fearful, and to be fearful when everyone's greedy. And I still believe in some of that. And I'm trying to I'm a Buffett psychologist or anything. I do believe in I do believe in market psychology and um, the fact that things can get overdone and get overdone on the upside, and they get overdone on on the downside. And you know, I think the other one of the other mistakes. No, one of the other areas people may be missing out uh, in terms of negativity at the moment is the fact that away from stock markets, we've got this phenomenon where venture capital um, and to a lesser extent private equity is backing uh, and putting a lot of money into to unlisted um, enterprises. And I think, you know, I think it's something like 130 Four unicorns, which is a tripling from a few years ago, which is a you know billion dollar companies that aren't even listed yet. And listed markets existed for you know one of the reasons they do exist is for liquidity. Now there's a lot of money going into things that are unlisted at the moment uh, with a lot of liquidity around, and we haven't seen the, the flip side of that on the downside. And I think there's issues there. We've also you know we've obviously seen the crypto space, you know where we had Bitcoin and the like in total getting up to over you know. Market values of over two trillion dollars have come back somewhat from that, but that's just another sign of that. You know, people are you know happy to forget about risk and just chase you know speculative returns. And um, 
I think you may have just answered my next question, but I'll put it out there anyway, just to be explicit about it. We've had a few people on this show and more broadly on Livewire recently who have who believe that we're currently in a bubble, probably the most prominent of, of which was uh, Jeremy Grantham from GMO. I want to hear your view. Do you think that we're in a bubble today? I think we're in a well, bubble's a hard word. I mean, it's, I think we're in a, a, a period of where asset prices are very highly priced, um, and and that's a worry. Um, I think there are areas of the market where I can't believe this, you know the level of speculation that is going on. Um, but the other thing, it's it's very hard to ring a bell at, at the top, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned. Uh, what I have seen before is that, for want of a better word, bubbles and speculation and extreme asset prices can go on for a while, and they have been going on for a while. Um, and as I tried to say to you before, you know, I would not have 100% of my money in asset markets at the moment if that's, if that's what my super allocation is, and that super's there for a time. And, um, you know, um, you're not giving up much in terms of. Um, just sitting there with, with some cash um, in terms of pricing pricing risk as it should be priced. I don't think I think risk pricing is you know it's next to zero. I think that's you know again that's dangerous. I know what you know. I know, I know where you're going with Jeremy, and I like and respect Jeremy a lot. And I'm not trying to dilute anything that he said. I just think it's you know it's very hard to call the top, but. Things are extreme. The boat is very heavily tilted to the positive side. And, you know, don't, for God's sake, don't complain if it all tips over tomorrow or it tips over in 18 months' time because markets do do that and they'll do it again. Are there any kind of periods in history that you would identify as kind of offering useful analogies for investors today? As perversely as it sounds, the, the late 80s here in Australia, um, internationally, I think the US and some markets overseas in terms of speculation are very similar to what went on here with regards to mining stock and speculative stocks uh, in the late 80s uh, and even in the, the 1970s here. You know, speculation isn't new to Australia in mining. I mean, you've had this, you know, the term specking does come from specking mining stocks. Um, you know, there's a difference now, and it's, it's, probably, it's probably a more dangerous difference in the sense that interest rates are a lot lower and there's more you know, more liquidity around. But there is a lot of similarity between, you know, a, for want of a better word, a SPAC being there for promise and a specky stock, mining stock from the, from, the, from the late 80s that had the promise of finding you, you know, a gold deposit or the like. Now I can remember in the late 80s that, you know, pers- you know uh, prospective mining stock prospectuses would come out on a, on a Friday, and the, the issue would be closed uh, on a Friday afternoon, and everyone was skating around trying to get a prospectus to to to, to get into these things. And they were they were oversubscribed hundred of time, hundred times or whatever, and they'd come on at you know you know double triple of what you know whatever they got they they, they were listing at, and they basically were just cash boxes and hadn't done anything yet. And um, um, and you know we obviously all know Australia Australia. Probably was ahead of its time naming the entrepreneurial index, but the entrepreneurs were, you know, obviously it's completely different to a Zuckerberg, but an Alan Bond's completely different to a Zuckerberg or, or whatever. But um, that craziness is, you know, I think in a lot of areas, whether it's in hedge funds or whatever, is, is around today in some areas. 
Without getting into specific stocks just yet, are there any particular, I'm going to say hunting grounds where you're finding a lot of opportunities at the moment? That could be, you know, a a geography, uh, it might be a specific asset class, it might be uh, the, the dreaded thematic. <laughs> Are there any particular areas where you're, there's there's a lot of stuff that, or more, I guess, on a relative basis, you're finding a lot of opportunities? There's not as many opportunities, as, you know, um, or, which makes sense with asset prices, you know, record highs. There's not as many opportunities as there has been. Um, I'm sort of interested, and I, you know, I'll probably get kicked in the head for saying this, but I'm sort of interested in the areas where, you know, everyone's showing out the good stocks in a, in a sector that's hated, um, and that might be, you know, that might be coal stocks or, or the like. Um, and, you know, what I've found, and this is not related to coal stocks or anything, but what I've found throughout history is that um, you'll be surprised how many times you can make really good money buying something that's trading at a discount and their tangible asset backing. And um, I think, you know, if I look at, the companies I've done really well out of them, there'd be a skew of, you know, over 50% um, success rates that come from being in those asset plays at the right time. But basically what I'm saying there is that it's quite, again, I don't want to make it sound too simple, is that, you know, if a company's trading at, you know, 80% or 70% of net hard net tangible asset backing um, and, you know, management is sound and hasn't got a lot of debt, it can provide a fertile ground on the medium to longer term to make some really good money. And I've seen it time and time again happen. Um, uh, and even in the listed investment companies, you know, 18 months ago, they were all trading at 18 to 20%, sorry, 15 to 20% discounts. And they're now, <laughs> basically, they're now all, you know, at parity or, or at slight premiums. And, you know, and some of the managers in the local listed investment companies have been around for 20 or 30 years. They're not idiots, but but there was that beautiful time there where you could, you know, buy those, you know, those 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 vehicles at not long ago at, at very big discounts at the bottom of a market and all you needed was sentiment to change and, you know, know that the blokes running those girls, running those listed investment companies, and there is a couple of girls, um, running those listed investment companies, you know, were in the right stocks if you got a rebound. And you got sentiment to change that 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 it shrink. Now I'm not saying again. I'd be a bit wary of listed investment companies today trading you know, where they are, but I'm just trying to give you an example of where those sort of things can happen. Now I know you are hesitant to discuss individual stocks, so rather than trying to make you name another one, I was hoping that we could delve a little bit more deeply into one of the ones you've already named. You, I'm, I'm happy to do any of them, but Reef Casino was one that that kind of caught my attention just because it is, you know, it's very under the radar. It's not a stock that a lot of people are talking about, and I and I think that's interesting. Can you tell us anything about your thesis for that company? Well, yeah, I can, but I also want to just reiterate that I'm due to get one wrong, and I'm not. I don't want everyone putting their money in this, but you and, and again, it's an environment where. Um, Opportunities aren't as abundant as you know. You know, I think they are or should be. But if I take that one as an example, it's you know obviously a casino that's basically not much better than an RSL in Cairns, right? And um, it's um, it's tightly held in the sense that um, casinos Austria out of Europe is a majority shareholder, so there's a little bit of risk, you know, how that all ends up, but. 
it's you know it's distributing it distributed to it'll distribute roughly 20 cents at worst this year I'm assuming nothing bad happens with regards to COVID and it's trading at two dollars forty it's a as I said a casino just a, you know basically a one product company um, it's trading at two dollars forty the the valuation in the accounts that are audited um, show that you know, it's trading at about a 20% discount to what the casino's worth. Now they can move around a bit. Um, and as I said, just an environment where I've got to have some money in the marketplace, so I think it's I think it's all right. But, again, I've got to stress, I, you know, and I have got other stocks around that. I'd love to have a portfolio of 100 of them because I know you're not going to get everyone right. But I, I just, you know, and it can be tough time. I think it's, you know, it's quite safe. But, again, that's one, if that makes any sense to you. And, and you've got the other thing, obviously. Obviously, Patrick, we're in a dynamic where, you know, people can't get out of Australia. Um, you know, the, obviously the state of origin was in Townsville and all that sort of thing. You know, you've got people that want to travel to Queensland. You know, they're going to go in the casinos. They've got money to spend and they're going to spend it. Like, it's, it's you know, there's that, that side of it as well. So, and I've been up I've been up to it. It's, you know, it's a good property. It's not much, as I said, it's not better than... When you look at it, it's, it looks a lot like the Rudy Hill RSL, if not smaller, but, you know, they make money. And I, I'm not telling anyone, look, I punt a bit myself and the racist, but I'm not a compulsive gambler. You know, if someone's going to attack me over, uh, recommending a gambling stock, so be it. I don't think you'd be the first person to to discuss a gambling stock on this show. Uh, in in eighty six episodes, they've, they've given the Australia's market. I'm I'm certain it's come up more than once. <laughs> well, anyway, the, the, at times the stock market is the greatest casino of all time. So anyway, if you don't think that's true, I'll have that debate as well. But anyway. Well, that brings us to the end of the main part of the interview. However, I have three favourite questions that I ask every one of my guests. So if you can hang around for about another 10 minutes or so, we can jump into those now. Yeah, that's fine, Patrick. All right. Could you tell me about a book that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? Uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Now, that's a well-known book, Patrick, and I know... But it was a thing that opened my eyes, and I know it's, I know it opened. I know I know guys like Peter Cooper follow it as well, and it, it just it, they don't. I don't know if they even know if they have it as a textbook at university now, but they never had it when I was there, and it just it just brought a lot together. Um, you know, more recently, a book like From Zero to One by Peter Thiel, I think, is a good book as well. Um, only because he thinks you know outside the curve quite a lot. He's been quite successful at PayPal. Obviously, he's a billionaire and that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I'd re- actually recommend that's only a small book from, from zero, zero to one, given that Peter Lynch's one's probably well known now. Yeah, it's um, it's actually, as regular listeners of the show will no doubt know, One Up on Wall Street is my favourite investing book. It was, it was one of the first serious investing books that I read, and I think I've personally plugged it on the show several times, as, <laughs> as have some of my guests. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, I want to get in, involved in investing, yeah. I want to learn the basics, it's always the, the book that I suggest. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's what you should do. But it, I don't know, I'll probably take up too much time, but, you know, we're, we're on a podcast, but I think there's a very good podcast out there which is completely removed from um, the positive side of the share market, and that's one called Who the Hell is Hamish? Um, it's about basically a, a con man that, got stuck into people around Australia 
And I think it, you know, I've only just, um, I only just listened to it recently. But and again, they don't teach you this stuff at school. But all the dynamic dynamics of how people can be conned and screwed out of their money or their superannuation money, which is very practical examples. I just think it's a very good podcast for someone, for people that think investing um, and making money is easy. There's a lot of con artists out there, and that's a pretty good literal example of um, you know what can go wrong. And this guy you know, looted super money from some of the, uh, the names in Australia and around the world. And it's, it's a really good podcast. But anyway, sorry, I should, I'm not even in the recommendation game, but I just thought of it then. No, 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 that's okay. I'm always happy to recommend other podcasts, especially if they're not directly competing with me. <laughs> no, I, saw, I, just think, I was thinking about it the other day because I often get people coming to me, you know, they think, um, you know, investing is easy. It's not, it's not actually not easy. Um, and it's, and I'm not saying that to try and be a smart ass or anything. I just think, you know, I just, I hate it when um, people do things that they, they don't understand and lose money. And, and it's, it's very important money, whether it's super or a, a payout from the disability insurance. I just think it's, uh, it's just sad. And I think the industry itself focuses too much on the positiveness of returns and doesn't always focus enough on the risks of, you know, what can go wrong. Well, I'll, as I always do, I'll make sure to put links in the wire to this podcast for both of those books as well as the podcast. So if any of our listeners didn't catch names or are not sure where to find it, just go to our website, livewiremarkets.com and navigate to the wire for this podcast. And you'll see a couple of links in there to Amazon and Booktopia for the books and directly to the podcast for the podcast. Could you tell me about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? Um, in terms of biggest gains, it was either CSL or Magellan. Um, and, you know, if I just use the Magellan example, um, there was a period of time between 2005 and 2010 where you could buy Magellan at a, again, getting back to the asset place story, at a, at 80% of, of hard assets, which was basically cash. And you had two guys there called, obviously called Hamish Douglas and Chris Mackay, that are smart financial guys. And, you know, they had, uh, 20, let's say, 20% of their own. They had 20% each of the shares, right, and they were smart financial guys. And they basically, they, you know, they had skin in the game. There was no debt. Um and it hadn't done anything, and there was always a chance that those two guys could do something. And if they do do something, you know, it's no longer trading. It put it very simplistically, it's no longer going to trade a discount for asset backing. It's going to start trading on earnings, and and that that sounds simple, but as I said to you before, the number of times I've seen that happen in my career um, is astounding, to be honest with you. And um, and it's not, you know, it sounds stupid to say, but it wasn't that. You know, there wasn't a lot of rocket science in it, and that's obviously gone on to do what it's done today. And I'm not recommending the stock today. Obviously, it's gone up you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 times since that time, but that's, you know, they give you, and I've sold, out, I've sold out completely from it a lot earlier on, but that'll give you some, some idea or give your listeners some idea of what can happen, um, you know, in shortest periods of time, if a decade's the shortest period of time. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it, I don't think it was that risky. No, obviously, you know, I didn't think it was risky at all, actually. Now, I have one last question for you. 
But before I ask this one, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there and puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? See, that's an interesting question. Do you expect the stock to go up or, or not go down as much? Well, actually, uh, I think <laughs> almost everybody has a different interpretation of the question. Well, they do not. Yeah. No, 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 they genuinely do. So I've had people who have given me small caps that they think are going to go up five or ten times. I've had people give me very conservative investments that they think are likely to you know, very, very likely to be here in five years' time. So I like to leave the question open to interpretation. You're welcome to to, to take it however you like. In the context where at very high asset prices and where I'm positioned today, I think Illumina is an interesting stock that I'm, you know, I'll be interested to see what happens to it over the next five years. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you've had a, a very interesting life and and I don't mean that as uh, in, in the sense of uh, may you live in interesting times either. <laughs> but thanks for sharing your, your, your thoughts with us, your time with us. I genuinely really enjoyed the chat. It's all right, Patrick. Nice to meet you in these times. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Hopefully next time we can do it face to face. Who knows? Who knows where this is all going? (laughs) Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.